0: Well, friends, what a joy it is to be with you this morning. Thank you for having me, Blake. Thank you for the invitation. So glad to be here. Thank you for the warm welcome. We've enjoyed uh, exploring northwest Arkansas. This is our first time down here. What a beautiful part of the country uh, that we hadn't seen before. Uh, And I've enjoyed exploring Fort Smith also. Um, As Blake said, I serve as uh, an assistant professor of historical theology at Midwestern Seminary and also as a curator of the Spurgeon Library. How strange. It is that Spurgeon's books, 6,000 volumes, are in Kansas City, Missouri, Uh, and this Chinese-American is now, (laughs) like, watching over these books, right, God's amazing providence. Um, Well, for our brief time together, uh, Blake has asked me to come and tell you about Charles Spurgeon. Um, So I have two lectures. I want us first to think about his life, and then second, think about his pastoral ministry. Um, How many of you... Have been down to the Spurgeon Library? Yeah, a few hands. Okay, okay. Um, so can, can we have that picture up of, of the library? Um, it, it's a beautiful space. Uh, if, you, if you come by Kansas City, come, come check it out. Uh, as I said, it, it houses his 6,000 volumes. It's part museum, and we tell the story of his life. Uh, have a number of um, artifacts. As, as Protestants, we don't call them relics. We call them artifacts <laughs> uh, from Spurgeon's life. And, uh, and it's also a research center. We, we host all kinds of scholars and people who are coming in. And they access Spurgeon's books. They access all kinds of materials that we have, letters and all these things. And we're doing a lot of kind of cutting-edge scholarship on Spurgeon. Um, and just as Blake said, I mean, it's, it's important for us to ask the question, why do we spend all this energy, this space, uh, this time on a Saturday morning uh, devoted to thinking about the life of uh, this one man? And certainly, I just just want to echo what Blake just said. It's not because we want to venerate him. It's not because we think that, you know, if we do everything that he did, we will somehow be blessed. Uh, No, rather, our goal is, as we look at Spurgeon, um, that we can see uh, the gospel more clearly. We can see what it looks like to live faithfully as Christians. Um, You know, one of the ways we try to illustrate that is, if you go to the next picture, um, there on the sort of... Front doors of the Spurgeon Library, we have these nice glass doors, and we always say the goal here is not that we would look to Spurgeon, but look through Spurgeon, right, and and looking through him, we might see uh, the Lord Jesus Christ more clearly, and and see what it is that he requires of us, how we can live faithfully before him, and so that's my hope for this morning, that we would not look to him, but look through Spurgeon uh, in order to grow in our own walk with the Lord Uh, And to help us do that here in our first talk, I want us to think about his life, and um, I want to give you seven lessons from Spurgeon's life. And we've got these beautiful sort of portraits that line the Spurgeon Library, kind of telling some of the highlights of his life. Uh, I think they really, when they designed the Spurgeon Library, they envisioned it like one of those British cathedrals that you'd walk in with the beautiful stained glass telling kind of the story of church history. Uh, and so it's something like that. Well, I want to use those portraits to, to walk through the life of Spurgeon. And, uh, and for each, each portrait, I want to tell one lesson. So the, first of all, we want to look at the lesson of the snowstorm. So you can go ahead and pull up that first portrait, um, the lesson of the snowstorm. Yeah, there it is. Um, <clears throat> Spurgeon was born uh, June nineteenth, 1834. Uh, his parents were John and Eliza Spurgeon. Uh, he was born in the city of Kelvedon. In Essex, in England. Uh, John and Eliza were strong Christians. John worked as a grocer. Now, before Spurgeon turned one, John was moving his family down to the city of Raleigh uh, to start a new grocery store. Uh, Eliza was pregnant. As you can imagine, they're moving. It's a hectic time. Uh, so John sent Charles, his, his firstborn son, to go live with his father, James. Uh, while he got his family settled there in the city of Raleigh, uh, Charles's grandfather was a Congregationalist pastor in the village of Stanborn. And uh, if you read a typical Spurgeon biography, they tell the story of how Spurgeon grew up for the first five years of his life with his grandfather, and they kind of move quickly from that to then to talking about how then his family moved to Colchester, and he re- rejoins his family in Colchester. But they kind of leave it unanswered. Like, why in the world did John and Eliza leave Charles with their grandfather for the first five years of his life? Um, Well, as it turned out, things never really got settled for John and Eliza. They moved down to Raleigh. John started a grocery store there, and uh, he ended up in debt. Uh, He had debts that he couldn't pay. The the grocery store failed, uh, and he was unable to pay back his debtors. And in those days, if you couldn't pay back your debtors, you got sent off to debtor's prison. And so uh, John was sent sent off to the the prison there in Kelmsford. And uh, in order to get out, they basically had to sell everything that they had. Um, You you can find the newspaper articles of uh, the the auctions where they're selling off all their possessions, including like a child's crib, like the the, the very crib that might have held Charles when he was a little baby. Um, it, it must have been just a, a deeply painful and, and shameful kind of event for, for John and for, the, for Eliza. So much so that Charles never talks about it in his own story, uh, that the biographers don't mention it. Um, through, with the help of a friend, we were able to kind of piece together kind of that story. And, and that's, it turns out that's what happened uh, for the first five years of Charles' life. After they get all those things sorted out, John and Eliza eventually ended up moving to Colchester, uh, where Eliza's brother worked uh, as a shipping sort of merchant, and he was able to provide John a job as a shipping clerk. And, and so all that sort of tragic backstory explains why Spurgeon's five, first five years were spent living with his grandfather, who was a pastor. Uh, Spurgeon's earliest memories are of him growing up in a pastor's home, watching his grandfather prepare sermons, you know, visit church members, uh, basically just being a, a faithful pastor. Um, and that experience of those first five years would prove to be formative for Charles. You know, that also explains why Charles tells us one incident of uh, when he borrowed a penny to buy a pencil from a, a shopkeeper there in Colchester. When his father heard about it, he immediately sort of lectured him really seriously about the the danger of debt and uh, and then immediately marched him back to the shopkeeper and made him pay back his debts, you know, and and... and, uh, and Spurgeon says, from that day on, I hated debt as much as Luther hated the Pope. Uh, uh, and you know, that, that kind of aversion to debt would kind of stay with him. I mean, he would build the Metropolitan Tabernacle debt-free. I mean, all the ministries that he would undertake, he, he refused to borrow money. Uh, and that, I think, is in part owing to John's experience right of, uh, there in, in Raleigh. Uh, that earliest experience also explains why you know, when big brother Charles returns to Colchester and rejoins the family with all his little siblings, um, why he's leading them to play church, right? Rather than to play grocery store keeper, right? I uh, mean, Charles obviously is the pastor. His siblings are the church members. And, and that's what they play, you know? Uh, because he, growing up with his grandfather, uh, that shaped his, his imagination. Uh, he gained a vision for what he was to be a pastor, um, so Spurgeon grows up in this Christian context. He, he, he attends church there in Colchester, uh, the local Congregationalist church. He, he's a part of the Sunday school. Uh, he watches his, his godly mother lead in family devotions. Charles is a bright student, always at the top of his class. Uh, but he would always remain close to his grandfather. You know, On summer vacations, he would go back to Stamborn and spend time with his grandfather. Uh, he talks about those many summer days. Spent reading through his grandfather's library. uh, And that's where he was introduced to the Puritans um, with with all of their Calvinistic theology and their uh, kind of emphasis on the affections in the Christian life. So he would read Richard Baxter and John Bunyan and Joseph Elaine and and all the other great Puritan writers. And all these things as a young boy began to work together in Spurgeon's heart to convict him of his sin. Uh, From an early age, he was very sensitive towards his own sinfulness. Uh, he was never, as far as I can tell, like outwardly rebellious, uh, but he talks about being very aware of the sinfulness of his heart, uh, his own pride and jealousy and envy and patience. Uh, for a while, he, he even began to wrestle with doubts. You know, does God even really exist? Um, is the gospel even true? In all of this, he, he wasn't sure what it really meant to be a Christian. He, he talked about how he sat under a lot of preaching growing up, but looking back, he thinks that those preachers probably talked more about what it looked like to live as a Christian or how to prove that you are a Christian rather than what it meant to receive Christ's finished work for you. So, so from, from basically the ages 10 to 15, Spurgeon, though he, he lived in this sort of uneasiness. He was quite uh, convinced of his sin, and yet he wrestled with a sense of helplessness and lostness. Um, The answer finally came on a snowy winter morning. Uh, That's what this picture shows here. Uh, January 6, 1850. Spurgeon was back at home in Colchester on a winter break. Uh, School had gotten out early because of an outbreak of a fever. And he decided that holiday he would visit every church in town just to see if anybody could tell him the way of salvation. And on that particular Sunday morning, he was walking towards the city on his way to another church when this sudden snowstorm blows in, and that forces Spurgeon to sort of turn down a side street and take refuge in a local primitive Methodist chapel. Uh, And there he went in, and he found just a few handful of people there. Uh, He said that the primitive Methodist sang so loud that it made his head ache. Uh, And after the singing, then an uneducated lay deacon got up and delivered a very simple sermon. He preached on... Isaiah 45:22, uh, look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, was the passage. And he gave a very simple message saying that all that God requires of us is that we would look to him. Uh, he's not, God is not asking us to do anything, anything for him. Uh, and, you know, all we have to do is look. It doesn't take much to look. Just as the Israelites looked at the bronze snake in the desert and were healed, so we look to Christ um, and we are saved. And as Spurgeon sat there, sort of dripping wet, um, it all sort of becomes clear to him. Uh, This is what he writes. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone and the darkness had rolled away. In that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Yeah, and so you see there, you see the snowstorm outside the windows there, but you see the the light breaking through (laughs) in the picture as uh, Spurgeon is converted. That Sunday morning, yeah, he's radically converted, and, and this would change the course of his life forever. You know, for the first time, he understood that faith in Christ is not about us doing something for him uh, us fulfilling some sort of prerequisite in order to be saved. No, it's, it's about receiving, about trusting in what Christ has done for us. So here's the lesson of the snowstorm. Uh, it's basically that this, that God works miraculously through very ordinary means. God works miraculously through ordinary means. I mean, have you, uh, does it snow here in Fort Smith, right? Have you ever been on, on a Sunday morning and there's like nobody here because it just snowed? <laughs> right? Um, don't underestimate what, what God can do, even in that moment. Uh, <clears throat> you never know who's going to show up. You never know who's going to show up to Sunday school that day. You never know who's going to show up to, to, to worship that day, uh, who's going to be in the service. And and you never know what God might do, right? And not only on a snowy Sunday morning, but, you know, for, for all of life. I mean, you never know what God might do through another time of family worship, um, through another Sunday school class, through your own personal quiet time, what God might do in your life that morning um, through another Sunday gathering. All these very ordinary things God can use to accomplish his miracles, his powerful, wonderful work. Uh, Spurgeon came to believe this about preaching. Uh, He was converted under the preaching of this uneducated lay preacher, and uh, he never got over that fact. He says this, personally, I have to bless God for many books, But my gratitude, most of all, is due to God for the preached word. And that, too, addressed to me by a poor, uneducated man, a man who had never received any training for the ministry and probably will never be heard of in this life, a man engaged in business, no doubt of a humble kind during the week, but who had just enough grace to say on the Sabbath, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. The books were good, but the man was better. The revealed word awakened me, but it was the preached word. That saved me. So, you know, you may never preach like Spurgeon, you may never go out and get a, a seminary degree, uh, but never underestimate what God can do through your very simple sharing of the gospel, you know, to a friend, to a neighbor. Uh, g- while God does use our efforts and our talents, but ultimately the power of salvation doesn't lie in us, it lies in the gospel and that, and that wonderful message. That, that though God is our creator, to whom we owe all our worship and love and obedience, that we all have rebelled against him. We all have turned away from him. We've put ourselves on the throne of the universe and decided to live our own way. And in that rebellion, we have, through our sin, brought death and judgment into our lives and into this world. But God, in his love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, uh, into this world to live a life of perfect obedience And to give his life as a sacrifice in our place. uh, To bear the judgment that we deserve. And he died in our place. And yet three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he had conquered sin and death. And now for all who will repent of their sins and trust in him, uh, God promises to forgive you of your sins and to welcome you into his family, into his kingdom. You know, as Spurgeon learned, the gospel is not about what we do for God. It's what he has done for us. And we, receiving that free gift of salvation... Well, this gospel changed this 15-year-old's life, and that same gospel can change our lives today. All right, that's the first lesson, uh, the lesson of the snowstorm. Uh, the second lesson is the lesson of the river. We're going to look at Spurgeon's baptism, so you can go to the next picture. Um, <clears throat> so, so Spurgeon grew up in this Congregationalist family. Uh, as I said earlier, his, his grandfather was a Congregationalist pastor, and uh, Congregationalists practiced infant baptism. So Spurgeon was baptized as an infant. But when he was in school, uh, he was at one point attending a Church of England school, and one of the clergy challenged his view of of baptism. Uh, You know, the Church of England, they used to do something different where they would require like sponsors to be appointed for all the children being baptized, Uh, and their thinking was the sponsor would provide the faith that was needed for that baptism. Congregationalists didn't require that. So this clergy was saying, well, you know, that's, go back, go study your New Testament. You, you always rec- need faith to be there alongside baptism, right? And, and, and so Spurgeon thought, you know, that's strange. Uh, let's go back and look at that. He went back and studied his New Testament, and, uh, and then he went back, and the clergy asked him, well, what did you find out? And the clergy said, well, it turns out we're both wrong. <laughs> um, actually, baptism only happens after your profession of faith there in the New Testament, And and he becomes convinced of that position. And he says, you know, if if I'm converted, I'm going to be baptized also properly. Uh, Now, in those days, to be a Baptist was not a favorable thing. Uh, It was bad enough to be a Congregationalist because you're outside of the state church. Uh, But to be a Baptist, that was to be really kind of on the margins of society. Uh, Spurgeon writes this, Up to the age of 14, I had not even heard of people called Baptists. And when I did hear of them, it was not at all a favorable report that was given to me concerning them. I cannot help feeling that somewhere or other, I must have heard some slanders against them. Or else, how, how should I have had that opinion? Well, in, in January of 1850, he's converted. And, and now he he wants to be baptized. He wants to be obedient to Christ's command. And so he immediately begins to look around for a Baptist minister to baptize him. Uh, he finds the Reverend W. Cantlow. He had a fellow classmate whose father was a Baptist minister. Uh, <clears throat> Reverend Kentlow was a former missionary to Jamaica. So he makes the appropriate arrangements. Uh, but at the same time, he wants to get his family's approval. Um, if, you know, maybe some of you here have come from paedo-baptist backgrounds, and you know sort of the, the sort of delicate dance that is, you know, if you've become convinced of believer's baptism. Now you have to tell your family, hey, I don't think my infant baptism was valid. I want to be baptized as a Christian. Um, and and the family sometimes may feel hurt by that, right? It's, it's kind of this it's delicate thing. That's what Spurgeon had to go through. So he, he first writes to his grandfather, says, hey, I'm, I'm going to be wanting to be baptized here. Um, I want your approval. And his grandfather says, that's fine, as long as you don't become one of those Baptists who, who think that they're the only Christians in the world. And Spurgeon says, no, no, no problem there. I'm, I'm not one of those kinds of Baptists. Uh, even though Spurgeon was firmly a Baptist, he was always very open to working with other evangelicals, right? Those who held to the gospel even if they had differences when it came to things about the church. Um, then, then he wrote to his father and his father was not happy. Uh, he, he saw his son, his firstborn son as a headstrong uh, young, young man um, and he didn't respond for a long time. Spurgeon had to write him multiple times uh, and finally at the last moment he gave his approval. And I think Spurgeon... By that time, he had already scheduled the baptism. I think he would have gone ahead with it even if his father hadn't approved because I think Spurgeon understood this was ultimately about obedience to Christ. Uh, but I think Spurgeon was also wise to not want to burn bridges with his family over this, right, to, to as much as possible try to pursue their approval. He was still only 15 years old at that point also. Um, so on May 3rd, 1850, uh, Spurgeon was baptized there on the River Lark, uh, a ferry crossing outside of Newmarket. Uh, Baptists in those, in those days still had public outdoor baptisms, uh, which is very cool. Uh, he was baptized on his mother's birthday. Uh, his, his mother said to him, Ah, Charles, I often pray the Lord to make you a Christian, but I never asked that you might become a Baptist. <laughs> and uh, Spurgeon responded, Ah, Mother, the Lord has answered your prayer with his usual bounty and given you exceedingly abundantly above, and, above what you asked or thought. Um, you know, you can hear in his mother's words uh, just a sense of her disappointment, <laughs> of, of kind of her lower view of Baptists. Um, but, you know, for Spurgeon, this wasn't about wanting to be a part of a group or what other people thought of you. Uh, this was about obeying God's word, obeying God's command. And he wrote about this in his, ex- his experience uh, on the day of his baptism. He said, I felt as if heaven and earth and hell Might all gaze upon me, for I was not ashamed there and then to own myself as a follower of the Lamb. My timidity was washed away. It floated down the river into the sea and must have been devoured by the fishes, for I have never felt anything of the kind since. Baptism also loosed my tongue, and from that day it has never kept quiet. I lost a thousand fears in the river lark and found that in keeping his commandments there is great reward. So so the lesson of the river is that obedience always brings great reward. Obedience to Christ's command always brings great reward. You know, obedience can be costly. It can put you on the margins of society. It may mean the disapproval of family and loved ones. It may mean all kinds of hardships. But in the end, you will never regret obedience to Christ's commands. Uh, And that's true on the final day. And that's even true in this life. I think one of the great rewards of obedience in this life is that as we walk in obedience, God equips us to serve Him and His people. You now, God is surely able to use us despite our disobedience. I think that's certainly true. But far more often, God is pleased to use those who are willing to walk in obedience to Him, uh, even in small and unseen ways. You know, Spurgeon says his loo- his tongue was loosed at his baptism. You know, it's, it's kind of taking that step of obedience, of publicly declaring his faith in Christ, that put him on the path where um, he was able to serve the church and able to do what he, he would go on to do. Uh, and it's as we walk in obedience today that we are equipped then to serve Christ and serve his people. So if, if you want to know the joy of serving God, then, then walk in obedience to his commands. Right? There is great reward as we live in obedience to him. All right, number three, the lesson of the cottage. That's this next picture here, the lesson of the cottage. Uh, <clears throat> later that summer, Spurgeon would leave Newmarket. He would move to Cambridge, a uh, big university town. Spurgeon would work there as a tutor. Now, here's the irony. I mean, he, he becomes a Baptist. Uh, Baptists in those days were not allowed to study at the University of Cambridge. Uh, you had to be part of the Church of England to do that. Uh, and yet, here he is working as a tutor. He's tutoring young men who are getting ready to go to Cambridge while well, he himself cannot go to Cambridge as a Baptist, right? Um, <clears throat> he he there, there in Cambridge, he joins St. Andrew's Baptist Church, and right away he begins to serve. He's teaching Sunday school. He's passing out tracts. Uh, he's going on visitation. He's sharing the gospel. And especially in the Sunday school class, people begin to notice, hey, this, this young man is actually a pretty gifted teacher. Um, he, he becomes kind of a head teacher, training some of the other young men um, in, in the Sunday school classes. Well, that church had a lay preaching society. Uh, capable men from the church would go out into the villages and lead in services, uh, worship services, on, on Saturday afternoons, on Sunday afternoons. And the person leading that group noticed this young man, uh, Spurgeon. Uh, he, even though he was just a teenager, he thought, hey, this, this guy has potential. So he, he finds Spurgeon and he asks him, hey, would you be willing to accompany uh, another young man who's going out to the villages um, to preach? Would you encourage him, maybe lead uh, in prayers and lead in the songs, and he'll do the preaching? And Spurgeon says, yeah, sure, I can do that. So in January of 1851, uh, they're, they're heading out to the village of Teversham. And on their way, they're talking, and Spurgeon's saying, hey, I'm looking forward to hearing you preach. And the other young man says, wait, I thought you were going to preach. Uh, and it turns out that they've both been told the same thing. Uh, I don't know if that, that leader did that on purpose or if he just got things mixed up. But, but there it was. That's the situation. Uh, and the other young man says to Spurgeon, well, if you're not going to preach, there's not going to be a service because I'm not going to preach. Um, <clears throat> well, at that point, Spurgeon said you know, he had never preached a sermon for a worship service before. He didn't have anything prepared. But he decides, you know, I'll take the service. And he says, "This it seemed to me that I could surely tell a few poor cottagers of the sweetness and love of Jesus, for I felt them in my own soul. Praying for divine help, I resolved to make the attempt. My text, my text, should be unto you who believe Christ is precious, and I would trust the Lord to open my mouth in honor of His dear Son." And so, Spurgeon shows up here in this cottage, in this village cottage. Uh, And there he preaches his very first sermon from 1 Peter 2, verse 7, meditating on the preciousness of Christ. And he surprises himself. He gets through the sermon without breaking down. He doesn't run out of things to say. Uh, He's able to like bring the sermon then, kind of make his way through it, bring it to a conclusion, and wrap up the service. Uh, Of course, after the service, the very first question, How old are you? was the leading question. I am under 60 was the reply. Yes, and under 16 was the old lady's rejoinder. Never mind my age. Think of the Lord Jesus and his preciousness. Well, so at that point, young Charles is 16 years old. But he thinks, hey, you know, and and these days maybe you don't find it that uncommon for a 16-year-old to preach a sermon. I think it's still unusual. But in those days, sort of in the formality of things, it was even more unusual for there to be a 16-year-old preacher. Uh, But he thinks, hey, maybe I can do this preaching thing. And so he joins that late preaching society, and uh, he begins to preach throughout the villages and uh, around Cambridge. Uh, he works during the day as a tutor; he's tutoring students, uh, and then on weeknights and weekends, he's going out, you know, carrying a lamp, going out into the into the uh, villages and, and leading in services and preaching sermons. Um, <clears throat> we one of the projects that we've had at the Spurgeon Library is publishing. Um, all these earliest sermons that he's preaching as a teenager. So one of Blake's books over there is this volume called The Lost Sermons of C.H. Spurgeon. Uh, and these are these sermons from these times when he's just working as a village preacher. Uh, he's 17 years old. He's learning how to preach. The early sermons are not very good, just like any early preacher. He's, he's copying a lot of John Gill and, uh, and William J. and, and you know, he's kind of borrowing a lot of material. But as he goes along, you can tell he's, he's progressing as a preacher. Uh, and he's getting much, much better. By the, by the time he's 17 years old, uh, a church in the village of Waterbeach calls him to be their pastor. He's a, he's a bivocational pastor. Um, so he works during the week as a tutor in Cambridge, and on the weekends, he goes over to Water Beach to preach and to, to care for the people. And by the age of 19, word is getting out that there's this, just this boy preacher out in the villages of Cambridge uh, that's actually a very good preacher, uh, so much so that a church in London hears about Spurgeon and invites him to be a guest preacher and eventually calls him to be their pastor at the age of 19. So uh, he starts preaching at 16. By the age of 19, he's, past- he's, he's called to pastor in London, the, the biggest city in the world. Um, <clears throat> how many sermons do you think he has preached between the ages of 16 and 19? So those two and a half years. Um, you know, think about a, you know, a busy year for Blake He's preaching. Let's say, let's say you don't give him any vacation. He preaches every Sunday, so 52 sermons that that year. That that would be a heavy load, right, for one year for one pastor, 50 sermons. Two and a half years for Spurgeon, 16 to 19. How many sermons do you think he's preached? 400. I mean, that would be an amazing number, right? That'd be a lot. 700. 700 sermons. Uh, To be precise, 689, 89 sermons. Um, I mean, the, the boy is just, uh, he's learning to preach by doing it. You know, he, he, he does not get a college education, but his college education is his pastoral work and his preaching. Uh, it's just, and so those 689 sermons are in the seven volumes of the Lost Sermons of C.H. Spurgeon that we've published. Uh, just an extraordinary feat. All right, so what's the lesson of the cottage here? Here's the lesson. Start serving Jesus wherever you are, right? Start serving Jesus wherever you are. You know, we all want to do great things for Christ, but notice Spurgeon doesn't wait to start preaching uh, until a church in London calls him to be their pastor. Um, no, he, he first begins by, by sharing the gospel and by teaching a Sunday school class, uh, handing out tracts. One thing led to another, so that eventually he finds himself pastoring a church in the largest city in the world, right, in the big metropolis. You know, for those of you who want to serve Christ, don't worry about the size of your audience or your platform, but begin where you are. You know, who are the non-Christians in your life? Who are, who are the non-Christian members in your family? Who are your neighbors? Are, are there Sunday school classes here in this church that need teachers? Uh, is there a new Christian to begin discipling? Uh, is there a nursing home here in town or a homeless shelter? that needs people to come and lead services. Here's how Spurgeon puts it to all the aspiring preachers in his church, and I think to ours also. Many of our young folks want to commence their service for Christ by doing great things and therefore do nothing at all. Let none of my readers become the victims of such an unreasonable ambition. Those who are willing to teach infants or to give away tracts and so to begin at the beginning are far more likely to be useful than the youth who is full of affectations and who sleeps in a white necktie, who is aspiring to the ministry and is touching up certain superior manuscripts which he hopes ere long to read from the pastor's pulpit. So there you go. Start, start serving Christ wherever you are, in whatever small ways, and you never know what Christ might do with you, right? All right, uh, let's go to the next one, lesson number four. The lesson of the palace. The lesson of the palace. Well, Spurgeon arrives in London, 1854, in the spring. Um, in the spring of 1854, actually in the winter of, of 53, I should say, uh, the situation at the New Park Street Chapel there in London was dire. Uh, this was the congregation that previously was pastored by, by Baptist giants and heroes like Benjamin Keach and John Gill and John Rippon. Uh, For centuries, this was the leading church among Baptists there in London. But by 1853, the church had fallen into serious decline. Attendance was down just to a few dozen. Uh, The building had been moved to a terrible location in London. Um, Now they were occupying this this huge cavernous building that was in disrepair, and it sat basically empty. I mean, just a few dozen would gather each Sunday morning. Uh, Just a reminder of how much they, they had declined. Uh, one of the deacons, deacons had just written to the Baptist Union that winter, letting them know that they could report no baptisms and zero growth in the past year. Uh, they were without a pastor, uh, and so he asked the union, the Baptist Union, to pray for them. Well, if there was somebody praying for them, uh, God answered that prayer because Spurgeon was invited to preach there in the winter of 1853, and uh, for the very first time, and. That Sunday morning, December of 1853, he shows up, uh, and, and people right away kind of perk up. Uh, even though he was this country boy with an Essex accent, he had a bad haircut, waving around an unfashionable polka-dotted handkerchief. Still, this was preaching that they had never heard before, uh, preaching that was engaging, that was down-to-earth, that was and yet rich in theology, weighty and full of the gospel. Uh, by January, they invited him back to, to sort of candidate, to, to, to give a trial run here in this church, to fill the pulpit two Sundays a month. And by April, the church was ready to call him. Uh, the members of the church were already telling their neighbors about their new pastor. Uh, by the time he was called, there were about 100 people there. And from there, the church would only continue to grow. Spurgeon writes this, "'Somebody asked me how I got my congregation.'" I never got it at all. I did not think it my business to do so, but only to preach the gospel. Why? My congregation got my congregation. I had 80 or scarcely 100 when I preached first. The next time I had 200. Everyone who had heard me was saying to his neighbor, you must go and hear this young man. Next meeting we had 400, and in six weeks we had 800. And that was the way in which my people got my congregation. And, and that kind of... Amazing growth would only continue. As newspapers began to report on this sensational boy preacher, uh, people began to turn out by the hundreds and thousands to hear him preach. Pretty soon, all the bridges and, and roads leading up to New Park Street Chapel uh, would be blocked with traffic every Sunday um, with people trying to get in to hear him, this, this boy preacher from the countryside. You know, People outside the building were needing to be turned away from the services Uh, Inside the building, it was standing room only. Before long, Spurgeon had to begin renting larger and larger spaces to be able to fit people while they began to make plans for building a larger building. You know, these Londoners had never heard such lively, down-to-earth, passionate, gospel-centered preaching, Um, not since the days of Wesley and Whitfield, people were saying. Well, very quickly, Spurgeon's fame grows throughout England and the rest of the British Empire and the rest of the English-speaking world uh, as a great preacher. So much so that in 1857, uh, when there is a a mutiny in the colony of India with with terrible violence and terrible atrocities committed, um, the queen calls a day of fasting and prayer. And for the fast day service there in London, who else is invited to preach but 23-year-old Charles Spurgeon um, 23 years old, there in the Crystal Palace, uh, no amplification, preaching before an audience of 23,654 people. Uh, this, this massive space with terrible acoustics, um, no amplification, and this 23-year-old is the preacher. You know, before the service, he arrives there. He, he wants to kind of test the acoustics of the building. He stands at the platform, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And uh, there's, a, there's a man working on the building up there in the rafters, and he hears that. He doesn't know who says it. He thinks it's the voice of God. <laughs> and he's immediately convicted of his sins. He goes home and repents and is converted. Um, never, Jackson never underestimate the importance of a good sound check, right? You never know what the Lord might do with that. Um, You know, back then, without amplification, preaching is like a physical activity, right? Spurgeon would uh, supposedly measure the chests of his students to make sure that they had enough lung capacity to be able to preach in those days. Because if you can't be heard, then you can't preach, right? If people can't hear you, uh, we're in the business of being heard. And so, uh, you know, if you imagine, I mean, me standing here, I mean, you'd have to, in a space like that, there would be people probably even beyond the parking lot. I mean, p- sitting past the street, maybe over on the next block. Maybe by the end of the next block, people are sitting over there. And standing here without any, pr- without any amplification, you'd have to be able to project so that they could hear you way, way, way back there, right? Uh, I mean, I just think of, like, maybe opera singers today would be s- uh, some kind of equivalent because if you've ever heard those guys sing, I mean, they can project a lot of volume. Uh, we're just not trained that way these days, right, in our preaching. Um, they, they interviewed a child after the service, uh, asked him, hey, could you hear Mr. Spurgeon? And the child said, I could hear him like he was sitting right next to me, whispering in my ear, uh, which is fascinating. Now, the preaching that day was so strenuous, Spurgeon writes this, I was not conscious at the close, close of the service of any extraordinary exhaustion, yet... I must have been very weary, for after I went to sleep that Wednesday night, I did not wake up again until the Friday morning. (laughs) So he he just exhausted himself preaching that service. Most importantly, though, uh, for that fast day service, Spurgeon preaches a sermon on Micah 6, 9, Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it. Uh, It's a sermon on God's sovereignty over calamity, uh, God's sovereignty over evil, and the way God uses it as a discipline in our lives. Uh, he s- saw this as an instance calling London to recognize her sins and to repent. Uh, it's a powerful sermon calling people to repent of their sins, both sort of national and personal, uh, and place their trust in Christ. And so the lesson of the palace, I would say, is preach Christ wherever you are. Right, Preach Christ wherever you are. And what I particularly appreciate about what's going on here I mean if you look at this picture and then if you flip back to the previous picture I mean notice how different those two, these two portraits are right I mean if you just go back and forth between these two pictures I mean you just see one he's preaching to farmers and the other he's preaching to 23,000 people in the capital of the British Empire appointed by the queen uh, but in both instances he's preaching the same gospel he's preaching the same message calling people to repentance and to faith in Christ you know, the most important thing about Spurgeon's preaching was not the platform that God gave him, but the message that God gave him. And regardless of the platform, whether he has a large audience or a small audience, he's preaching the same message. And that's the I think that's the lesson for us, right? Be faithful to that message of the gospel. Um, I remember once attending a pastor's funeral service, and this is a a, a pastor who had graduated from Westminster. He had pastored some significant churches. He had trained other pastors around the world. He had encouraged me in my studies. I'd heard him preach. I was encouraged by his preaching. Um, preached all over the world in, in conferences and seminaries and churches. But I remember being at his funeral service, and one of the associate pastors got up, and you know he had also been mentored by this pastor. And he talked about the time when he once went with him to go listen to him preach at a, a, a battered women's shelter. And there he was preaching to just a handful of women and as he listened to him, he had listened to him a lot before. As he listened to him that time, he thought, oh my goodness, this is the best sermon he has, he has ever preached. Here's the best sermon that he will ever preach. I mean, this, this is an amazing sermon right now. Uh, and, and he did so to these poor women, right, holding out Christ to them. Um, I, I just love that picture because it's just a wonderful uh, picture of what faithfulness looks like. Kind of wherever you are, even if it's a small setting or a large setting, Uh, preach Christ you know the goal is to hold out Christ to those to whom you're preaching to Um, if you would have asked Spurgeon the secret to his preaching he would say it's Jesus right he once said this the gospel ever fresh and ever new has held my vast congregation together these many long years and the same power has kept around me a host of readers a French farmer when accused of witchcraft by his neighbors because his crops were so large exhibited his industrious sons, his laborious ox, his spade, and his plow as the only witchcraft which he had used. And under the divine blessing, I can only ascribe the continued acceptableness of the sermons to the gospel which they contain and the plainness of the speech in which that gospel is uttered. So uh, the secret to Spurgeon's sermons is not any witchcraft. No, it's the gospel. It's the gospel plainly communicated, and held out. And that's the lesson of the palace. Preach Christ wherever you are. Uh, all right, let's go to the next portrait. And actually, can you skip to the portrait with Susanna? Um, no, There you go. Uh, here's, here's the, I wanted to talk about Susanna a little bit, the lesson of, let's call it the lesson of Susanna. All right. <laughs> um, you know, when, when Spurgeon first arrived at New Park Street Chapel, Susanna Thompson was, was staying with a deacon in the church, William Olney, Olney had heard Spurgeon preach that Sunday morning, and he quickly got the few dozen people there that Sunday morning, again, this is Spurgeon's very first Sunday, and he said, hey, you guys have to go home and find, invite your neighbors to come back, because if, if we come back on Sunday evening, and it's still this small, this young preacher might be discouraged, right? And he might not come back, so, so uh, Olney runs home and quickly invites his wife, and Susanna, who was staying with them, to come back and listen to this young preacher. Well, Susanna went back, went back that Sunday evening kind of reluctantly, uh, and she heard this country preacher for the very first time. And the earlier description that I gave of the, of the bad haircut and the polka-dotta handkerchief, that comes from Susanna. <laughs> she was not impressed with Charles, uh, but her, his preaching was intriguing enough so that she would keep on coming back. And she kept on coming back, so much so, that by January of 1855, she's, she experiences conversion. Uh, she's converted under Sp- Charles's preaching, and she's ready to be uh, baptized, which she is, by the new young pastor. Um, and later that year, in 1855, Spurgeon would initiate a relationship. Um, his, his opening pickup line is, have you ever prayed for the one that you thought you'd marry? <laughs> so, so young men, you can tuck that away. Have you ever thought to pray for the one that you would someday marry? That's the pickup line. Uh, <clears throat> uh, and soon, they would begin dating, and Susanna would find herself dating the most popular preacher in the English-speaking world. Uh, and, and that was a hard thing. That was, that was a hard thing for her to get, a, get accustomed to. Um, Spurgeon was really busy, and what they would do on their dates would be uh, watch Spurgeon edit his sermons. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what they would do when they would spend time together preparing them for publication. Uh, whenever Spurgeon would preach, like prior to his sermons, he would get so focused in, in getting ready to preach that he would forget everything else. And so there would be times where she would walk into his vestry before the service, and he'd be like, Hi, I'm Charles. Nice to meet you. <laughs> you know? And she'd be like, No, I'm your girlfriend. Like, I'm so, you know me already. Um, <clears throat> uh, there was a time where they were heading to a speaking engagement, and as soon as they got there people began to mob Charles so that they got separated. And and obviously Charles is focusing on this upcoming service uh, and so he kind of forgets all about her. And so Susanna runs home to her mother, you know, in tears. And her mom says to her, you know, this is what it means to be united to a servant of Christ. Uh, You have to be ready to sacrifice kind of your own preferences so that he can fulfill his ministry. Um, And for her, that was kind of a, A watershed moment she had to realize okay this is what it's going to mean if i'm going to be with this man right um charles stopped by later that night he didn't forget about her he was distraught because they had gotten separated and they were able to patch things up well needless to say things weren't easy for susanna they loved each other deeply uh, and they got married in january 1856 and you know one of the wonderful things about you know in church history i mean here is a loving faithful marriage Uh, By all accounts, they had a very loving marriage. One of my friends, Ray Rhodes, has written a wonderful biography of uh, Susanna Spurgeon called Susie. Uh, And he also has has a volume called Yours Till Heaven, which is a a a book about their marriage. Um, So I commend both of those works to you. The the lesson of Susanna is basically that we can't go at it alone. Uh, We need help. We need other people around us. Um, You know, even as we serve God, God has always intended that we would do it with others, right? Whether it's Moses and Joshua or or Paul and Barnabas or or Mark and Peter um, or Jesus sending out his disciples two by two, Uh, we need brothers and sisters, we need friends, we need faithful spouses, we need people by our sides to strengthen our hands in our service. Without Susanna, there would not have been a Charles. He was only able to do what he did because he had his dear wife by his side and a host of other faithful friends. One of my favorite Charles and Susanna stories uh, is about a time when Charles was working on a sermon and the hour was drawing late and he just could not come up with an outline for his text, though he was convinced that this was the text that he needed to preach on. and, uh, and, And he was getting exhausted. And he says to his wife, look, it's late. Hey, let me just close my eyes for a few hours and then wake me up. Uh, and then I'll I'll work on the sermon again in the morning, um, and she's like, "That's that's fine, I'll, I'll I'll do that." And so he goes to sleep, and uh, a few hours later she hears him talking, and she notices, "Well, oh my goodness, he's preaching a sermon." So she pulls out pen and paper and begins to take down what he's saying. And pretty soon she has a whole sermon <laughs> uh, written out, and so she says, "Oh well, I'll let him sleep." And so he he sleeps till morning. and He wakes up and he's like, "Oh my goodness, like." Honey, you didn't wake me up. And she hands him a full manuscript. It's like, here you go. Here's your sermon. Uh, and he goes on to preach that sermon that, that morning. And you can actually Google and find that sermon. Uh, and it's like a very good sermon. You know, I had a friend who used to be able to uh, fold his laundry in his sleep. Like he was a sleepwalker. And he would go to sleep with a pile of laundry and wake up and it's all folded. Uh, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, it's kind of scary, actually. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> But if I could do that for my sermons, can you imagine? That would be awesome. All right. <clears throat> I wouldn't count on that, though. So don't, don't, don't bank on that. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's go to the, the orphanage. There you go. The lesson of the orphanage. Um, actually, I've got three portraits here. I've got the orphanage, and I've got the church, and I've got the pastor's college. So these three pictures kind of summarize his ministry in London. So I'm going to save the church and the pastor's college for the next talk. Um, but let, let's talk about the orphanage here a little bit. Um, and, Blake, I got to 1030. Is that right? Okay. All right. So um, here's, here's Spurgeon, the philanthropist. I, I mean, Spurgeon pastored uh, in London in the 19th century and 1800s. If you've ever read Charles Dickens, you know a little bit of sort of the, the sort of poor working conditions there in London Um, because of the industrialization there happening in that time. All the jobs were moving to the big cities. And so people were pouring in from the countryside into London to to work in the factories, to work in the warehouses, in the docks. Uh, You know, and I mean, these were terrible conditions. Unsafe, unsanitary, living and working conditions. Children working seven days a week. Uh, Parents, you know, working over their, their workshops, falling asleep. You know, there and over their benches, waking up and then continuing to work. I mean, just terrible. Um, Hardly any fresh air. No no running water. Families crammed into little apartments. Human and animal sewage running through the streets. Uh, You know, it's no surprise that mortality rates were really high among the poor communities. And a lot of children were left orphaned. Uh, As a pastor... Spurgeon saw this. I mean, he, he himself came in from the countryside, right, to to live in London, and he had a heart for the poor. He he wanted to see not only the, their poverty alleviated, but he wanted to see the gospel go out to these people. So he he intended he especially aimed to preach in a way that these uneducated middle class and lower class could understand. Um, he he looked for ways then also to draw people to the gospel through all kinds of charitable institutions. So out of his church, uh, during his 50th birthday, one of the deacons got up and read a list of all of the charitable institutions that were started out of his church. And the list contained 66 ministries, uh, including pastoral training classes, night school classes, Sunday schools, evangelistic missions, Bible studies, prison ministries, deaf ministries, blind ministries, immigrant population ministries, The police ministries, I mean, just all kinds of ministries geared towards caring for the needs of the poor in the city uh, and bringing the gospel to them. Uh, And and really, this is, in doing that, this is really what Christians have always done, right? This is what the earliest Christians did. Uh, They had a reputation not only for caring for their own poor, but also for the poor around them. Uh, In 1867, there was a widow of a wealthy Anglican, Anne Hilliard. Uh, she contacted Spurgeon, and she said, hey, I want to give you a gift of 20,000 pounds towards establishing an orphanage to care for orphans. Spur- Spurgeon right away went to see her, and he said, hey, I think, I, I think you wrote an extra zero on this check. And she said, no, no, really, twenty thousand, twenty thousand 20,000 pounds. And so with additional fundraising, the Stockwell Orphanage for Boys was opened in 1869, and there was a girls' orphanage opened uh, 10 years later in 1879. Uh, And throughout Spurgeon's ministry, hundreds of children were rescued from the streets. Uh, Many of them were converted uh, and joined the church. And some of them even went on to study with Spurgeon in the pastor's college and would would go on to be sent out as missionaries and pastors. Uh, One of my favorite accounts of Spurgeon is one where a, a visitor from America, John B. Goff, comes to see him. And Spurgeon says to him, hey, let's go, let's go stop by the orphanages. Uh, so Goff writes this. It was a beautiful day in London as we rode together chatting all the way. When we entered the orphanage grounds, the boys set up a shout of joy at the sight of their benefactor. Uh, Mr. Spurgeon was like a great boy among boys. Uh, So Spurgeon then visits with the headmaster. He gives each boy a shilling, leading to a shrill, hearty hurrah. Uh, And then Spurgeon turns his attention to the infirmary. Uh, There was an orphan who was dying there of consumption. And Spurgeon knew that 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 boy would be disappointed if he didn't stop by to see him. So John B. Goff writes this, We went into the cool and sweet chamber, and there lay the boy. He was very much excited when he saw Mr. Spurgeon. The great preacher sat by his side. Holding the boy's hand in his, he said, well, my dear, you have some precious promises in sight all around you in the room. Now, dear, you are going to die, and you are very tired lying here, and soon you will be free from all pain, and you will rest. Nurse, did he rest last night? He coughed very much. Ah, my dear boy, It seems very hard for you to lie here all day in pain and cough all night. Do you love Jesus? Yes. Jesus loves you. He bought you with his precious blood, and he knows what is best for you. It seems hard for you to lie here and listen to the shouts of the healthy boys outside at play. But soon Jesus will take you home, and then he will tell you the reason, and you will be so glad. Then laying his hand on the boy without the formality of kneeling, he said, Oh, Jesus, Master, this dear child is reaching out his thin hand to find yours. Touch him, dear Savior, with your loving, warm clasp. Lift him as he passes the cold river. Let his feet be not chilled by the water of death. Take him home in your own good time. Comfort and cherish him till that good time comes. Show him yourself as he lies here, and let him see you and know you more and more as his loving Savior. After a moment's pause, he said, Now, dear, is there anything you would like? Would you like a little canary canary in a cage to hear him sing in the morning? Nurse, see that he has a canary tomorrow morning. Goodbye, my dear. You will see the Savior perhaps before I shall. And then Goff writes this. I had seen Mr. Spurgeon holding by his power 6,500 persons in breathless interest. I knew him as a great man, universally esteemed and beloved. But as he sat... By the bedside of a dying pauper child whom his benef- uh, beneficence had rescued, he was to me a greater and grander man than when swaying the mighty multitude at his will. Uh, what a wonderful picture, right? Um, <clears throat> the lesson of the orphanage uh, compassion opens a door for the gospel. Compassion opens a door for the gospel. You know, what Goff saw that day is a glimpse of what Londoners and all of Spurgeon's opponents saw throughout his ministry. You know, because even if they hated Christianity, even if they were skeptical about its claims, when they watched Spurgeon care for the poor and care for the orphans, there's nothing that they could say about that, right? Uh, They could respect that. And for many of them, they would say, well, even if I don't care for religion, because of this man's work among the poor, and the way he lays himself out and, and gives himself for that, I'm going to give him a hearing, right? I'm going I'm to hear what he has to say. And, and both among the poor and among the skeptic, Spurgeon's compassion opened a door for the gospel. I think evangelicals here in the 21st century tend to be nervous about mercy ministries uh, because in the 20th century and the 21st century, people have come along teaching a social gospel, a teaching that says, If we care for the poor, uh, if we set up good schools, if we dig wells, if we set up art galleries, that is kingdom work. That is gospel work. Uh, I remember one church in Portland proudly telling reporters that as they were helping out at the local elementary school, they had no ulterior motives of any sort of proselytization. They just wanted to do, like, good work in that local elementary school. And that reporter was obviously gushing and commending them for their sort of Um, pure-heartedness. Well, Spurgeon never believed that. Spurgeon uh, always understood that evangelism is the priority, right? Um, And yet, uh, he understood that compassion often provides a wonderful platform for that evangelism. Right? And, and so he would have always been honest. No, I do have an ulterior motive. I want you to hear about Jesus. Uh, I want you to know the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and be saved. Uh, and yet, I understand that you have all these needs, right? And I, I, I want you to, do, to be helped in those things uh, so that you can hear the gospel. Um, so the lesson of the orphanage is just a reminder for us to have our eyes open to the needs around us, uh, to, the, to the practical needs around us. Uh, Jesus came to preach the gospel to the poor and so should his followers. Uh, As as famous as Spurgeon became, he never lost sight of every individual. Um, The story goes that at one point, the London police discovered a list that was being circulated among the the panhandlers of London, Uh, and the list contained all the the soft Tommies, (laughs) all the easy targets in London, Um, and at the top of the list, Charles Spurgeon, Uh, an easy target for Panhandlers, Because, you know, uh, whatever you might think about how to respond to panhandlers, my point is uh, that we should cultivate a heart of compassion, right, for the poor uh, because that creates opportunities for the gospel. All right, uh, one last lesson, and then we'll be done. We're going to skip the next two portraits because we're going to focus on those in the next sex- session. Uh, <clears throat> but the last lesson here, the lesson of the cane, the lesson of the cane, K-C-A-N-E, C-A-N-E, cane. Um, and it's, it's sort of what Blake had said earlier. You know, If you walked away from our lectures today thinking of Spurgeon as some kind of Superman, uh, you'd be gravely mistaken. You know, He preached amazing sermons. He pastored a massive church, trained up orphans. Uh, but to really understand Spurgeon, you have to know something about his suffering. Uh, because here in this picture, you see Spurgeon is older. You can tell that years have taken their toll on him. Uh, actually, in this picture, he's only in his 50s. He's like in his late 50s. Uh, but that's how hard he has aged. He's clearly not in London. He's in Mentone in southern France because this was a place where he would regularly go to try to recover his health. You know, London was actually quite dreary in the wintertime, cold and rainy, uh, and the pollution was bad. And so he had to leave London to recover his health. You know, Spurgeon had a lot of weaknesses. One of them was, was simply his tendency towards overwork. Uh, his, you can imagine all the pressures with the orphanage, with the college, with a massive church, uh, with all of the sermons. And all these things demanded a lot out of him. And in his desire to serve Christ, he would basically work at 100% until his body broke down and then have to go away to recover his health. And when he sort of recovered, he would come back and work himself to, to sickness again. Over time, he began to develop all kinds of physical ailments, rheumatism, arthritis. Uh, the worst was his gout, Whenever his gout flared up, he would need a cane, as we see here. And, uh, and all these things made life miserable for Spurgeon. When you read his correspondence, you get a sense of how he would go through weeks and weeks just with no idea how he would bear up under the pressure and the, and the pain that he was under. And yet the Lord sustained him. Uh, even more than his physical suffering was his emotional suffering. Uh, he would go through regular bouts of what he would call melancholy. Uh, Today, we might call it clinical depression. Um, He would feel low and discouraged. He would find himself weeping for no reason. Uh, Amid all of that, God would feel distant. Part of that came from this traumatic experience that he had in 1856. Uh, His ministry was growing. His wife had just given birth to twins. She was experiencing complications. He was preaching on a Sunday evening in front of an audience of 10,000 at the Surrey Gardens Music Hall. And um, it was the very first time preaching in front of that many people. uh, And that night during the service, some troublemakers yelled fire, causing a stampede. And Spurgeon tries to restore order to the service, and he ends up collapsing on the platform. And by the end of the night, seven people are dead uh, and dozens more injured. Uh, Spurgeon would go on to be Blasted in the newspapers for trying to attempt such a service. He never fully recovered from that event. Even later in life, memories of that night would come back to haunt him. Uh, he would often sort of be incapacitated because of that. Uh, again, by modern standards, I think people would diagnose him with a kind of PTSD coming out of that. You know, what I sense from that story and from all these other stories is, you know, is that Spurgeon wasn't this sort of self-sufficient, personally confident, always in control kind of kind of man? Rather, he was more like a needy, barely hanging on, desperate for God's mercy kind of preacher. Uh, it, it was that kind of person that God used to do amazing things, to bring glory to Himself. If you had run into Spurgeon at the height of his ministry, you would have been impressed by his voice, by his outgoing personality, by his bold convictions. But you would have also been struck by his frailty, uh, by his tiredness, and by all the people around him that were supporting him. The lesson of the cane is that God uses our suffering for our good and for his glory. God uses our suffering for our good and for his glory. Because I think in many ways that was the secret to his success. When you read Spurgeon's sermons, you get the sense that you're encountering somebody who, ha- who is familiar with suffering who has experienced real trials and yet found God to be totally faithful. And I think a good illustration of this is, you know, when Spurgeon was in that lowest of lows coming out of that tragedy in the Surrey Gardens music hall. He talks about how he couldn't come out of that darkness and he was trying to think about the cross, he was trying to think about God's sovereignty, he was trying to think about God's final justice, judgment day, maybe that would bring him out of that darkness. And none of these things would, would sort of alleviate his, his uh, distress. But then finally for him, after you know, weeks of this darkness, it was Paul's words in Philippians 2 that God has exalted Christ to the highest place and given him the name above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It was that thought that Spurgeon realized, look, it doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter what happens to this bruised reed, Christ's kingdom is secure. He is ever exalted, and he is sitting on the throne of the universe, and if that's the case, then I can press on, right? And so then the darkness parted, and he was able to continue his ministry. And I think there is just, here's a man who, you know, encounters God's truth, the truth of Christ and the gospel uh, in such a real way that it actually makes a difference in his life, and then, therefore, he's able to bring that to his people. He's able to preach that to his people. Um, so, friends, if, if you want to be fruitful for God, then get ready to suffer, right? Uh, and I trust that you are already suffering. I trust you already know suffering, uh, but realize that God has a plan for your suffering. Uh, God will use the suffering in your life to produce some remarkable fruit, fruit that will not grow in times of ease and comfort. Um, as James says, he's going to use this to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, as I said earlier, my goal has been not that we look to Spurgeon, but that we look through him uh, so that we might walk more faithfully after the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray that he would apply these lessons to our hearts uh, that we've heard this morning. Let me, let me close this in prayer, and then we'll take a break. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would make us faithful, uh, that in, in little ways, in unseen ways in the midst of suffering, uh, Lord, that we would cling to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and that, Lord, that you would use us. Uh, that we would leave the results to you. We would leave platform and these things to you. But, Lord, that you would make us faithful wherever you've placed us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.